Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. We're excited to say that it's the season to get your Hashtag Sisters-in-Law merch. We have hoodies, t-shirts, and our brand new mug. Just click the link in the show notes or go to politicon.com slash merch today. Now let's get on to the show where this week we'll be discussing the latest in the Trump cases, voting rights, and the Supreme Court's hearing on SEC proceedings. But first, uh, I I wanted to say, did you folks see that um, Sandra Day O'Connor has passed away? Yeah, it was really terrible, uh, sad news. She was 93, uh, and of course she had been retired from the court for quite some time due to health reasons, not her own initially, but uh, to care for her husband who had Alzheimer's. But I remember um, I was just a teenager. I was in high school. The first time I ever came to Washington, D.C., it was actually the first time I ever flew on a plane. And I was able to go to the Supreme Court and she was kind enough to speak to the group of students that I was with. And she was funny and warm and brilliant and um, the only request that was made by the court before we talked to her is that we not take photographs because she was also battling cancer, but she was mm. on the job, she was working, and she, it just really underscored my decision. I knew I was pretty sure I wanted to go to law school, but that solidified it, to having a woman like that break the barriers that she had to break um, in order to get to that spot and clear the way for for people like me. Um, I may not have always agreed with her opinions, but I certainly respected her jurisprudence, um, including the fact that she upheld abortion rights, even though she was a lifelong Republican. She she was an elected official in Arizona. She was in the state legislature. Um, But I always respected her skills and her um, intelligence. So it, it really is a loss. Something I've been thinking about so much today is how different the court would look if she had not stepped down when she did to care for her husband. Um, You know, I think it's very likely that we wouldn't have, for instance, the Citizens United decision, because although she was a Republican, um, she, you know, had sort of a rational um, I just want to say a pragmatic approach to the law where she believed that the court's job was to make the country productive, to make the country work for all of its citizens. I don't think she had what we think of these days as a political agenda. I think she was a good jurist. She called the balls and the strikes. So like you say, Kim, whether you lined up with her on everything, she was a Supreme Court justice that you respected. And I have a tiny little personal memory about her. She was... um very lovely and always very engaged in the lives of her law clerks. And I briefly dated one of her law clerks while I was in Washington before I um, started dating my husband. And she really wanted to, you know, know what was going on in their lives. So I had to make the mandatory appearance um, one evening. And she couldn't have been any more charming in, in like a pink, sort of a fluffy sweater, um, just a really nice woman who was smart and bright and had this very important job. But the impression that I was left with was that she cared deeply about individuals and about the people who were in her orbit. And, and that's something that I think is a good example for all of us. So that, that sort of brings to mind several things for me. One is how powerful she was because she was a true swing vote. And she often was the deciding vote. But for me, like for you, I mean, her being the first woman and showing what that could mean, I was already well into my practice of law when she got appointed to the court. But it never failed to astound me that when she graduated first in her class, she couldn't get a job. She ended up being a receptionist at a law firm because even though she was first in her law school class, she couldn't be hired. And I met her for the first time. Um, I belonged 
at the time to the International Women's Forum through the Chicago Network. And she and Justice Berger uh, hosted a reception for us. And she was so lovely and charming. And then I actually got to argue before her um, in the only case I've argued in the U.S. Supreme Court. And Wait a minute. Do really we know that you had feeling. argued in the Supreme Court? I don't remember hearing that you'd know. argued in the Supreme Court. I Wait don't know. a minute. Well, see, I'd like to keep you guessing There's about all the things There's always some I've new done. surprise. <laughs> Holy smoke. So it is. Hey, and you know what one of the big issues was? It was at the time that Jewel LaFontante was getting attention for, she was the Solicitor General. What would she wear? Because back mm. in those days, morning coat. the people, the Solicitor General wore mor- morning coats. And so what was Jewel LaFontante going to wear? And I wore a pinstripe suit with a very long skirt just to ease your minds. No mini skirts because <laughs> uh, they were out of style, not <laughs> because God. of any other reason. But yeah, it was. It, it's if you've never argued in the Supreme Court, standing there, the bench seems like it's a hundred feet high, and you're really looking up. And what a joy it was to see a face that looked like mine. Oh. It was really. Lovely. So thank you, Sandra Day O'Connor, for all you've done for America and for women, for the practice of law, and for keeping the court in a moderate position. Yeah, I think for um, you know younger women who have never known anything different, uh, the idea that there was a time when there were no women on the court, no people of color on the court, it's really jarring yeah. to see some of those old photos. You know how the court does like a class photo <laughs> to start every term? I mean, most of the photos in history are all faces of white men. I mean, they're so, it's so stark in its failure to represent half of the population. Um, And so it really was a milestone. And, you know, when you're the first, you have, everybody's looking at you. You know, you've heard the Ginger Rogers, uh, you know, doing everything uh, Fred Astaire does, but backwards in, in high heels. Um, and so she did it with class, with grace. And, you know, I, I had a lot of admiration for her. I read her memoir. I don't know if you ever read this, but it's called like The Lazy Bee or something like this. It's about growing up on a ranch. Yes, yeah, about her ranch. Yeah, she grew yeah. up like hard scrabble ranchers, like, you know, um, farming animals. And um, it was fascinating. And, you know, I think, I'm sure some of that... Uh, rugged lifestyle helped to prepare her for the battles to come later in life. So we'll dedicate this episode to you, Sandra Day O'Connor. Thanks for all you've done for womanhood and our country. I want to add two things that she said just very briefly. One was her advice to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who she mentored when um, Justice Ginsburg joined the court and was assigned her first uh, um, opinion And she went to her saying, oh, I don't know how I can do this. How do I do it? And apparently Justice O'Connor just said, just do it. And I thought that was great advice, but she also talked about- Wait, you mean she created the the slogan for Nike too? (laughs) So many accomplishments this woman. Does he get residuals? That is a Jill Weinbanks moment. Only Jill has- Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, but her best line, which is one that I have always believed, is that she- said at some point, it's not enough to be the first. You have to do a good job so you're not the last. Amen. And of course, she wasn't the last. She did a good job. And I think that's the best thing for all women to think about. Don't be just the first. Make sure you're not the last. Mm, That's really good, Jill. Thank you. Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. Get down! With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Well, um, lots going on in Trump world this week. I thought it might be a somewhat quieter week coming out of the holiday. Absolutely not the case. Uh, Barb, let's start on Friday in Fulton County with hearings in the courtroom there to consider Trump's motions to dismiss and other matters. What's the upshot from that hearing and what do you think it means for the timeline in the case? Friday's hearing covered a lot of motions from the defense. Uh, I mean, one of their arguments is that the fake electors scheme fails as a matter of law because none of the electors was formally certified on the date they certified because there was a pending lawsuit. That strikes me as a, a losing argument. They've argued that Donald Trump's First Amendment rights are violated by this prosecution. That's another one that, you know, people love to play that First Amendment card that as if any, as long as I'm speaking, I can do anything I want. And of course, that's not true. So I think that one is likely to fail. Uh, one of the more interesting issues that they are debating is the trial date. Um, you know, of course, with a pretty loaded calendar with all of the other cases, uh, Fannie Willis has proposed August. She has also said she sees it going into 2025. So Trump's lawyers said a couple of things. One is, um, if he is elected and is a sitting president, legally, he cannot stand trial. You know, that that's not been resolved by courts, but it sounds right to me in light of the argument, you know, that the Office of Legal Counsel and Robert Mueller relied on that a sitting president cannot be charged because he's just too busy running the country and can't handle the distraction of a criminal case. That probably makes sense. So, you know, my, my, my response to that would be, as Fonnie Willis, well, great, let's have it in 2024 then before the election. And then they came back with the, yeah, and we prefer it not be done while he's campaigning because that's, <laughs> uh, that's really important too. So we'll see. I imagine the judge, you know, will take these motions under advisement. But it's an important step to get through these motions. This is, you know, the part in all criminal cases where defendants challenge the, the, the charges on legal grounds that, you know, there's some defense that the case can't go forward. So it's an important step, an important milestone. We'll get past it and then, uh, you know, see where we go from there. But I don't see any of these motions resulting in a dismissal of the case. And I just want to say, Barb, that I do not think that the Office of Legal Counsel opinion is correct. I think it needs to be revised. It seems absurd to me to think that a president could, or a, a past president, could commit crimes that are clearly crimes and not be tried for those. It just doesn't seem right to me. The criminal justice system uh, allows some way of holding people accountable and stopping criminal behavior. Yeah, one of the unanswered questions. You know, I think the, the response would be, first, you have to impeach him. And then once he's out of office, then you can charge him and try him. But, um, you know, it's, it's un, unresolved legal questions. So it's, it's open for interpretation for sure. You know, it really is. And I don't think anyone ever thought that they were important questions until we got into the Trump era. And suddenly they're pressing questions. And it's a little bit difficult to change the rules when you're in the middle of a situation that always smacks of politics. But I think Jill raises a fair point and something that'll have to be considered down the road. Um, Barb, I, I agree for what it's worth with your assessment, by the way, that these motions um, in Fulton County aren't going anyplace. You know, many moons ago, I litigated some um, Dixie Mafia cases, some some drug trafficking cases against Steve Sadow, who's now Trump's lawyer. And he's a very canny advocate in court. And so I was particularly struck by the way he sort of, he didn't really distance himself because he was very much his client's advocate. But he used these um, really awkward phrasings like, well, we would prefer that the case not occur, you know, while he's running for election. I mean, it was really just interesting. I think we heard a lot today for those who were able to follow along with this hearing about where Trump is going. It's very clear that they will argue he cannot be tried while he's running as a candidate and he cannot be tried while he's in the White House, that a trial would have to be deferred until he leaves. That should be a big red flag for Judge Scott McAfee, that he uh, needs to chop, chop, get on with it, right? Um, so leaving Fulton County, 
Kim, there are two other cases with gag orders, the New York civil fraud case and the criminal case in D.C. The D.C. gag order is still on appeal, but earlier this week, the New York order was restored, and the judge said he intended to enforce it vigorously. Can you talk about that ruling and what it restored? And then I'm always interested in your speculation. Do you think, based on Trump's recent social media posts, is he going to be able to uh, uh, live without violating the gag order again? Well, I'll answer that second part first. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. (laughs) Um, And so recall that this is the gag order that was put in place in the New York civil trial that prevented him from discussing court personnel um, during the trial. And Trump just can't help himself and repeatedly uh, talked about uh, the particularly uh, Judge Angoran's clerk, whose job it is to be his clerk. And so she is visible in the courtroom spewing all kinds of nonsense about her being a co-judge or uh, being a political actor. It's all kinds of nonsense. She has endured a plethora of threats as uh, a result of this. And so the court uh, held him uh, for, uh, cited him for violating this order. His Trump's attorneys appealed, claiming it violated his First Amendment free speech right. Um, A panel of the New York appeals court, state appeals court, uh, shot that down. They didn't even give it the dignity of an opinion. They just rejected it (laughs) um, outright uh, because it plainly does not. Because uh, as the court had argued, the Engeron's court had argued, not only does uh, his comments put people potentially in danger from his followers who attack them. But it also goes against the administration of justice in the court. It's disruptive. It's wrong. And he's already been warned that he shouldn't do it. So as an idea as to whether he'll do it again after, right after this ruling, what did Trump do? He started attacking Judge Ingerin's wife by claiming that she posted things on social media that She didn't even do, he cannot help himself. He has no impulse control. And I can only imagine that he will keep getting cited, keep getting fined because he just can't bring himself to not violate this order. You know, you would think the attack on Paul Pelosi would have been enough. It would have been a wake up call for any sane person, right? And the problem with this is nobody takes it seriously until somebody almost gets killed and even following that, Republicans have just refused to discipline the leader of, of their party, who I think is placing the judge's wife and his law clerk at serious risk. And, and it is appalling and it is inexplicable to me that these are real people whose lives Trump continues to um, put at risk. And you can point, we should point out that Judge Engeron's wife does not have a social media account. Yeah, it's all lies. That was, it, it was a total fake. It's all lies. And yeah. so whoever created that account um, was just an excuse for Donald Trump to attack. Well, him. they say she deleted her account, Jill. It was there. <laughs> it was there. I saw it. But then she deleted her account. That's what this far-right oh blogger my says. God. It doesn't make yeah. it so. Yeah. Oh, my God. I, but, I mean, to, to the theme of disinformation and Barb's yep. area of mm-hmm. expertise, right? That's exactly how it happens and yeah. how people get harmed. Yeah. Um, well, Jill, that takes us, I think, to the D.C. case, right? Judge Chutkin denied Trump's request for subpoenas so he could get discovery related to January 6th. Um, Trump said the government was withholding information from him. <laughs> the government said he was on a fishing expedition. Who do you think got it right? I'm for the fishing expedition answer. <laughs> um, it's really quite clear that he did not have a um, detailed enough explanation of what he was looking for, how it would be relevant, how it would be admissible, and that there was really any there there to what he was requesting. And I am sure that Judge Chutkin took into account that this is one of those cases where you want to give the defendant everything that you possibly can, but there has to be a limit and you can't let him just make stuff up and get, say he can have it. So I think that the court was quite correct in saying, no, you don't get this material. There's nothing there that's admissible. There's nothing there that you have identified uh, clearly and detailed enough to meet the standards for such a subpoena for a pretrial request. 
So we are taping Friday mid-afternoon, and Friday morning, with really no warning, the D.C. Circuit dropped an opinion in an appellate case that was a little bit of a a bombshell. It's a case you probably haven't heard much about lately. Um, This was an extremely important development. What you may recall is that Capitol Police officers and members of Congress, Eric Swalwell is one of them, sued Trump over January 6th, saying that he had caused it to happen. And Trump argued that he had presidential immunity and couldn't be sued because of it. And after waiting almost a year, the Court of Appeals has finally ruled they held that the case against Trump can go forward at this point and that not everything that candidate Trump did was covered by presidential immunity. So we are still digesting a rather complicated opinion, but I thought we could just flag some of the the contours for y'all. Barb, what's the basic ruling in the case and how do you think it will impact this civil case that it was handed down in? Yeah, you know, I don't think this is a big surprise. This is the same way the trial judge had ruled. And so the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals has now affirmed that ruling. But essentially what they say is that a sitting president uh, who's in his first term and seeking re-election has two roles. One is their role as president. And anything that the president does within the outside perimeter of his duties is protected by presidential immunity. But that same person also wears a different hat as a candidate for re-election for president. And things that he does solely in that capacity are not protected by that immunity. And so they say the activities that are alleged in this complaint, you know, in particular the speech he gave on the ellipse that day, that was all about his role as a candidate. He doesn't have any duties as president to Uh, work with the states in the administration of their elections. And so, therefore, what he's alleged to have done in that complaint is not protected by immunity, and the case can go forward. So, Kim, I I mean, it seems obvious, right, that Trump appeals this decision. Do you think that that'll happen, and how do you expect that appeal to progress? Yeah, I, he will. That they will absolutely appeal this because this is a crucial uh, point, as we pointed out, not just uh, in the criminal case, in the civil case, but also in the criminal one um, as well. So certainly, he will appeal it. Look, I, I can never predict what the Supreme Court will do in a, as a general matter, but I just can't imagine that the Supreme Court would issue an opinion that says a former, you know, a president is immune to do basically whatever he or she wants at any time. Um, clearly, it seemed that there was a solid basis for saying he was acting in a political capacity and not an official one. And I think that there's plenty on the record to support that. And I would expect the Supreme Court to uphold that. But, you know, you never know. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good analysis, though. I mean, it's sort of a sweeping opinion, but to Barb's point, it confirms this notion that we have talked about on the podcast repeatedly, right? This idea that there's a President Trump and a candidate Trump, and that candidate Trump isn't entitled to the same protections and immunities that President Trump is entitled to, which is very interesting, Jill, because that same argument has surfaced in Georgia and in other of the criminal prosecutions. I mean, this is a ruling in a civil case. Do you think it has any application to the criminal cases? And and if so, how do you think that plays out? Of course, civil and criminal are quite different, but the logic of it certainly applies. And so I think that it could be a predictor. And we've had other um, cases, including if we could go back to uh, U.S. v. Nixon, where the court said that the president doesn't have certain immunity because the criminal justice system has certain requirements and he has to cooperate with it. And you have other cases where, uh, in terms of Trump, the courts have said, mm, you know, he's different when he's a civilian than when he's a criminal defendant. And so I think I think it will end up being influential in the criminal case and that they would end up reaching the same decision. It's not directly applicable, but it is influential. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm persuaded it actually has some force. I mean, it is really the same issue, right? Whether he's entitled to immunity. And I wonder if this doesn't make um, 
the rulings, at least in Judge Chutkin's case, a little bit easier because this is now the law in the circuit in the District of Columbia, mm-hmm. at least and until, you know, the court on Bonk or the Supreme Court says otherwise, which I agree with Kim won't happen. Um, Barb, Kim, what are what are your closing thoughts? Do you think that this helps the criminal cases in any way? I think this bodes well for the criminal case, although Judge Chutkin and any circuit court of appeal panel that reviews this will be looking at slightly different facts. The legal issues are really the same, whether it's a civil or a criminal case. You know, in the criminal case, you've got uh, Trump's alleged call to Brad Raffensperger asking for 11,780 votes, and you've got the fake electors part of the scheme, which were different from what the court considered in this case. But again, those kinds of activities all strike me as falling within Trump's role as a candidate as opposed to his role as president. So I don't see it coming out any differently in the criminal case than it came out in the civil case. Well, as uh, folks were tucking into their turkeys and pies over the holiday weekend, uh, a couple of federal appeals courts were carving up the Voting Rights Act. So, Oh, Jill, I see what you did there. That's, yeah, that was nice. Man. Yes, Thank that's you. nice. Uh, so, Jill, in the first case, the Eighth Circuit, uh, a panel of the Eighth Circuit, held that individuals have no private right of action under Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. But of course, voters and groups like the NAACP have been suing under a proposed private right of action under Section 2 for, oh, I don't know, 50 years or more. So how did the court come to this seemingly inexplicable conclusion? Well, it is not just seemingly inexplicable. It is inexplicable because you're right. Almost all the cases have been brought by private litigants. The court has always accepted that as a fact. And now all of a sudden, this panel is saying, oh, no, only the U.S. Attorney General can bring these suits. Because in other statutes, it gives a private right of action specifically. And it isn't specifically included in the language of Section 2. And therefore, they said, no, they you can't can't bring it. Now, I don't know what they will do with the dozens of cases that have been brought by private litigants and upheld by the Supreme Court. That's something they didn't deal with. And I think it's wrong, and I'm hopeful that the Supreme Court will recognize that there are reasons why private citizens who are voters should be able to bring these suits and that it shouldn't require the U.S. Attorney General, especially when the U.S. Attorney General may be someone appointed by someone who wants to bring down democracy and to stifle the vote. We can't have that be the only thing. And by someone who might be president who says, I want to abolish the Constitution and I want to abolish all this. So I think we have to be very careful and hope that the Supreme Court does not accept this novel approach. Yeah. How about that, Barb? The Supreme Court, even our current very conservative supermajority Supreme Court, has upheld private Section 2 actions as recently as earlier this year with the Alabama gerrymandering case, remember, in Milligan? Mm -hmm. So why do you think the 11th Circuit is all of a sudden saying, hey, let's revisit this individual right to sue, uh, particularly in racial discrimination claims now. Yeah. You know, this is uh, endemic of this like post-precedent Supreme Court. Uh, you no know, the kidding. idea that uh, we, we review old cases, we don't, we don't follow them. We decide whether we think they were right the first time around. Um, one of the judges in deciding this case is a former law clerk for Justice Clarence Thomas. And Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch in recent rulings in the past couple of years, have issued dissenting opinions saying that they um, question whether there is this private uh, cause of action in Section 2. Even though it's been used that way for decades, they say, "Eh, you know, if the court had, or if the legislature had meant to say so, they could have explicitly included that in the statute, and they didn't. So I don't know. And so what this, um, this clerk 
you know, now a, a circuit court judge, but former clerk for Justice Thomas said is that, um, you know, much of the last half century, courts have assumed that Section 2 is privately enforceable, but a deeper look has revealed that this assumption rests on flimsy footing. I mean, doesn't that remind you of what Justice Alito said in Dobbs about Roe versus yep. Wade? It was egregiously yes. wrong when it was decided. Yeah, you don't get to go back in time and pick your precedents. So it's, um, you know, there are some very narrow parameters where uh, prior court decisions should be overturned. Uh, you know, when other law has developed around it in an inconsistent way, when we have new understandings of the fact and law, when people have not relied on it in their the conduct of their lives, none of that stuff is true here, just as it wasn't in Dobbs. And so, uh, you know, it really opens the door for the court, you know, just because the identities of the justices have changed, that whole body of law will change. And that's not the way it's supposed to work. Oof. Well, you know, Joyce, there was another opinion, too. It, it took a more subtle approach to uh, eroding this section to right when it comes to uh, claims, voting rights claims uh, and racial discrimination. But it's still pretty troubling. Um, but talk about that. It's a case involving statewide offices. And why is that concerning? Yeah, you know, I just want to bask in the rosy glow of Barb's comments for a little bit longer because I think her mm -hmm. assessment of the Supreme Court is dead on the money, right? This yeah. notion that they can just overturn cases instead of following them. And I also think your comment is dead on the money when you say that influences the courts of appeals because that's what you see happening in this mm -hmm. 11th Circuit case. Um, you know, usually when we talk about Section 2 cases, Voting Rights Act Section 2, we're talking about gerrymandering. But not always, and this one is a little bit different. Here's the issue. Georgia elects the five members of its Public Service Commission statewide. Everybody votes for all five of them on the statewide ballot, and Black voters sued, saying that the PSC should be elected by district because the statewide elections dilute Black voting power so much that Black voters are functionally unable to elect any candidates of their choice. Um, a lower court judge agreed with them, found that there was discrimination and violation of the Voting Rights Act, and said that the PSC members had to be elected from districts. They actually serve five different districts, which is an interesting facet of this case. They don't serve statewide. They serve a district, but they're elected statewide. So, Last week, the 11th Circuit, which has had this case for a while, looks at the district court's ruling, and they say, not so fast. We're going to permit these statewide elections to go ahead like they always have. And that's a big deal in Georgia. Public service commissions, they regulate telecommunications, transportation, utilities like Georgia Power and, and natural gas. They set the rates that people pay. These statewide elections let big business interests dominate PSC. So that's a big deal for the state. But the ruling has impact beyond Georgia on this entire issue of whether you can have statewide elections. And that may not seem important or sexy with everything going on with voting rights. But let me tell you, I went through this exercise of looking up pictures of all of the state Supreme Courts in the South. Alabama elected statewide no black Supreme Court justices. Mississippi, mm. one. Tennessee, none. Georgia, two. And so you can understand how statewide elections can dilute the, the power of minorities who would otherwise vote as a block if they could elect from inside of districts. It's, it, it is, I think, deeply problematic in that way. The case will head towards the Supreme Court. We don't know yet if they'll take it up. Um, but, you know, Barb, to your point about who the judges on the panel were, Judge Branch and, and Judge Grant are, are both Trump appointees. Judge Schlesinger is from the Middle District of Florida. He's a George H.W. Bush appointee. I think that they took up the invitation that at least two Supreme yeah. Court justices gave them in dissents, and I think the court will find a way to make it the law. Oof. Oh, my goodness. So, you know, I, I in writing about this, and I'll, I'll link my story in the show notes, I spoke to an attorney at the NAACP, and she talked me off the ledge, right, that she was just like, there's no way. There's just no way the Supreme Court will uphold this. And so then, you know, I start thinking, it's like, okay, so we have two. We have Thomas and Gorsuch, you know. Alito, I mean, we know what he's going to do. 
Chief Justice John Roberts, who has said he doesn't believe that racial discrimination exists anymore in voting. (laughs) So we have him. So that means that we would have to trust Amy Coney Barrett and Brett Kavanaugh to save the Voting Rights Act. Y'all, I'm still on the ledge. Talk me off. (laughs) Oh, I wish I could. But, you know, I think John Roberts probably regrets his vote in Shelby County to gut Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act if for no other reason than because those comments that racial discrimination was over make him look very foolish in hindsight. But, I I mean, I think it comes down to Kavanaugh as the swing vote, right? If they pick up Roberts, they still have to pick up Kavanaugh. And who knows, in in the Alabama case in Milligan, he voted with Roberts to uphold, um, or rather to insist that Alabama draw new maps that would better protect the rights of black voters. But he was very clear that his vote was not for all time. And I worry that his vote would not be for this time. Yeah, I don't know about those two. They they have, uh, you know, not been reflexively uh, MAGA agenda um, on every issue. So, I mean, they certainly have their pet issues. They were certainly ready to go along with Dobbs, but um, I don't know. I, I don't know if I can talk you off the ledge, but maybe I can give you a treat while you're sitting out there. <laughs> but don't you, yeah. don't you worry that this is not the MAGA agenda, that this is the long, I mean, this agenda yeah, existed this before is, Donald Trump was in power, right? I watched this in the, Alabama the and the Deep agenda. South. Yeah. Yes. That's why um, Roberts has been like, you know, long on board on this. Yeah. This, is, this is beyond my, I agree with that. Yeah. And I'm with Joyce that I would like to talk you off, but <laughs> I'm not putting my money on any of the six. And it scares me a lot that, and remember, the Voting Rights Act is my generation. It passed while I was just, I, I well, I guess I was just still in law school. And I was, was four. seen as... <laughs> Oh, quiet. Come on. <laughs> oh, make me feel old. Anyway, it, it was a very big deal in my era. We were, you know, we were all big on civil rights and my law school graduating class didn't want to go to Wall Street. We all wanted to work for the government and do good. And to see it just being eviscerated is really sad and awful. And to see it in the context where whatever John Roberts says Discrimination is not over. We still need the Voting Rights Act. And the only thing when they eviscerated having the preclearance, I mean, did you want Bill Barr making decisions on preclearance? What good does that do? So, yeah, now, okay, it'd be fine with, you know, Merrick Garland, but I don't know. That's, that there must be a better way to do this than, than that. Um, and certainly not allowing individual voters to bring the suit is a really bad thing. And this would be a bad one too. So I'm, I'm hoping that something wakes up the court and they realize that they're in such trouble with the public opinion that they will protect voting rights. Kim, sounds like we're not going to be able to talk you off the ledge. Would you like a sweater while you're out there? I'm knitting one Thank for you. you. I'll send it Thank to you. you. It is a cold place. But, you know, one thing that comes to mind is that voters matter. This means that voting rights is on the ballot because not only do presidents pick federal judges, and these were all Trump appointees doing this nonsense in the 8th and 11th Circuit, so that's important, but uh, the Senate uh, can either, you know, it's it's their job to advise and consent or block dependent on, you know, what they do, uh, judges from federal courts and the Supreme Court. And, you know, the, the Voting Rights Act, Act needs bolstering. It used to be reauthorized by just broad bipartisan yeah. uh, support. Now we need people to bolster it and bring it back to its former glory. So that can't happen unless all of you vote knowing that democracy is on the ballot. So it's up to y'all to get me off to get me off the ledge. So help me, save me. This week, the Supreme Court heard arguments about the Securities and Exchange Commission's ability to use its in-house administrative law judges in cases where the SEC is seeking civil penalties. There were actually three issues raised, 
but the court focused almost entirely on whether such defendants have a Seventh Amendment constitutional right to a trial by a federal jury. So, Kim, let's start by letting our audience, because this is one of those that sort of in the holidays got swallowed up, but is really important for a lot of reasons that make it something that people should pay attention to. Could you summarize the plaintiffs and the government's arguments and whether the case may impact other agencies besides the SEC? Yeah, sure. And I'm a total, I've mentioned before, I'm a total admin nerd. And so I can get easily in the weeds of stuff. So I will try to say it in layman's terms. But essentially, the plaintiffs in this case are uh, suing, challenging the constitutional authority of a panel within the uh, SEC, a panel of administrative law judges that adjudicate certain things, including civil penalties, by saying that it violates their constitutional rights under the Seventh Amendment to have a federal jury trial in cases where a jury penalty, which can can include monetary damages, are at stake. The government says, come on. (laughs) You know, since we've been in existence, we have, by the authority granted to us by Congress, have had within our administrative authority the ability to make administrative law judges, uh, to empower administrative law judges to adjudicate these kinds of things. And there's a reason for this, dear listeners. It's because if every single action brought by the SEC went to federal court, the federal courts would not be able to do anything else but adjudicate SEC actions. And it would also really reduce the ability of the government to hold people accountable for violating securities laws because this is a great way to uh, resolve cases, to get settlements, to get things resolved and move forward. It's a wonderful enforcement uh, procedure, but that's precisely what the people challenging them don't like about it. They don't want the SEC to be uh, robustly enforced. So this is one of many um, uh, attacks that have been waged against it. And of course, it can have uh, application beyond the SEC. Any of the agencies, many of which do, have administrative law judges who adjudicate things within that agency when it comes to regulation. So this is a barefaced attack on uh, the administrative state, but this current Supreme Court likes attacks on the administrative state. So again, I'm on the ledge on this too. (laughs) And rightly so, I think. So Joyce, I want to follow up on what Kim said because Uh, She's suggesting that it would make it impossible for the SEC to settle enforcement actions. It would impact court dockets. There are administrative law judges, over 2,000 of them, plus there are some um, 650 immigration judges as well, but there are only 900 Article III judges. So if you take away the administrative expertise in the area of law that administrative law judges have, if you impose a jury uh, requirement on these cases, what's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, it would really be a mess, right? And, And I think it is sort of a double whammy. The SEC loses its ability to settle cases because any litigant who's, you know, in that position anyhow can afford to take their case into federal court and try to get a second bite at the apple with a jury rather than agreeing to settle. And that really means the federal court's grind down to a halt. You know, we talk a lot in the Trump context about how long it takes a federal case to go to trial. Well, if this happens, those deadlines are going to be extended. It will be years before any cases can go to trial. Because right now, ALJ's administrative law judges, as you point out, handle a tremendous number of these cases. And they have specialized expertise. For instance, there are ALJs who handle just immigration or just SEC matters. They're subject matter experts. And, you know, it's very clear, and um, Justice Jackson pointed this out in oral argument, the law does not extend a jury right in cases like this. The risk is that if six conservative justices on the Supreme Court want to extend that sort of a right, then we end up with this quagmire in the federal courts. So I think that is a a real risk. This decision has the... uh, potential to really upend how the the courts function. So, Barb, let's follow up on that with um, 
the comments and the questions during the argument of this case, do you think it indicates a bias against the power of administrative agencies and a desire by this conservative course to cut back on regulatory uh, parts of the agency? That is a leading and loaded <laughs> question. And the answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think so. Um, uh, you know, uh, Chief Justice Roberts in particular, as you know, as, as uh, Kim and Joyce have already discussed, um, you know, are really determined to kind of chip away at pe- what people refer to as the administrative state and administrative agencies. And, you know, there's a case on this. Again, the idea that the court just sort of picks and chooses which precedents it likes and which it doesn't. Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson cited, you know, she said, isn't there precedent on this case? Like in 1979, Atlas Roofing versus OSHA? Have we already kind of decided this question? Um, and, uh, you know, that said that when there is cases arising out of statute, um, then uh, those are not cases that arise at common law. And so there's not necessarily a right to an Article Three trial in those kinds of cases. But um, the conservative justices said, well, uh, one of the things Chief Justice Roberts said is, you know, that case is almost 50 years old now. You know, don't you love it that when a case is old, it's either too old to be relevant or bedrock, <laughs> foundational to our country. <laughs> oh, it's 50 years old. I guess we're and learning said, that you know, they have a that- shelf life on those cases, right? There's an expiration yeah, date. I guess that's right. <laughs> Well, he says, you know, the agencies have grown a lot by then, so we ought to reconsider. Uh, same with Justice Gorsuch, who, you know, he, here's here's one that's really rich. He's talking about how uh, the right to a jury trial is a very important foundational freedom. Uh, but in the very first opinion that Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch ever wrote, he took away the right to a jury trial, a case called Epic Systems versus Lewis in 2018, his very first opinion. And he said, oh, ju- jury trial, shmurry trial. In an arbitration setting, employers can force employees to right away in, in a contract and sign away their rights to a jury trial. So that's no big deal. Uh, so here, I think that there are several justices who have a hostility to this idea that administrative agencies have this power versus Article Three courts. And I think they would like to see all of these trials go to Article Three courts and give the power to courts as opposed to administrative agencies. But of course, you know, the counter argument to that is administrative agencies have the subject matter expertise and the capacity. Uh, I mean, maybe we that means we need hundreds more Article Three judges. But um, this is... Uh, you know, in light of what we've seen in recent years about chipping away uh, administrative agencies' powers, um, this one does not bode well for the SEC or for people who invest in in securities. I'm going to die on this ledge. That's a very good point, Barb, very good point, <laughs> because you're right. How else are these protections that have become so necessary in our society going to be upheld if we don't have these cases tried in front of administrative law judges, and quickly. But, you know, aside from this right to a jury trial and whether it applies only to common law cases or whether it can apply when there's a public right being informed, um, there were also some two other arguments, one of which was a non-delegation issue, which in my mind, I'm glad it didn't get much attention during the argument because it could totally curtail the regulatory scheme that has been developed over all these years. Joyce, can you talk about what the non-delegation issue yeah, is? Yeah, I mean, I think this is part of the core notion of at least three cases that the court will take up this term where they're trying to think about how they can limit what they call the administrative nanny state, right? This is about who has power, federal courts or the executive branch. And so this notion that some duties are non-delegable um, it is, I think— something that could be very dangerous to the ability of executive branch agencies to continue to use their special expertise to conduct the nation's business. I mean, these are day-to-day decisions, not decisions that should get kicked over um, into the federal courts. And so, you know, this is very much like this notion that that Justice Gorsuch has, where the first major opinion that he wrote was an, an opinion that strips employees of their right to a jury trial. And now, 
you know, he and, and other conservative justices show up in this case saying, but jury rights are fundamental. It's like they use this sort of pretzel logic where they bootstrap themselves into these positions that they want to end up at and damn the ideological consequences of getting there. So I think you're right, Jill. It's a dangerous, there, there are some dangerous booby traps in this case. Um, let's hope the court avoids them. Pretzel logic. I love that idea. So <laughs> I pretend I'm actually going through some methodical analysis, but I know exactly where I'm going to end up. I've always used reverse engineering, but I like the pretzel. Well, analogy. you sort of have Did to you be. Make that up no, or is that out that's there? a Steely Dan album cover, girl. Oh. <laughs> pretzel logic, one really? of the greatest right. albums of all time. Pretzel logic. All right. I love it. I need to uh, improve my musical repertoire, apparently. So, Kim, let's follow up because on this subject of what's actually going on here and what is the danger of this, the full implications of this case require that we describe some recent Supreme Court decisions uh, and arguments where the new conservative majority has restricted or is considering restricting the powers of administrative agencies like the EPA, mm. whether the funding system for the Consumer Fraud Protection Bureau is legitimate, uh, it, you know, it's one of your favorite topics, I know, is the major is. questions, Doc. So could you just explain how this could really escalate to being a requirement that all administrative agencies stop work? Yeah. So in addition to uh, the non-delegation doctrine, which, you know, I, I won't say is made up, but it was kind of made up. Um, there's something else called the major questions doctrine that I don't want to say is made up, but <laughs> it was kind of made up. It, it says uh, that, well, I call it a theory because, but no, it's a doctrine now because the Supreme Court has totally adopted it, right? So it is a doctrine um, that's made up. It's a doctrine that essentially states that anything, any issue of major political or economic significance is assumed not to have been delegated by Congress to administrative agencies. So administrative agencies are free to regulate anything except anything of major <laughs> political or economic significance, which means nothing, like almost nothing, right? So it's totally made up. But in the last three years alone, what has the Supreme Court used the major question? Uh, the, I'm sorry. The yes, the major questions doctrine to rule on. Uh, let's just say they have rolled back federal housing regulations. They have thwarted employers' ability to mandate COVID vaccinations. They have stripped the EPA of a great deal of its power to fight climate change through the Clean Water Act. They have blocked the Department of Education's ability to modify or forgive student loans. That's just in the last three years alone. And two things that are on the docket uh, this term, there are two more administrative law cases on the docket this term, including that um, CFPB case, that could also be decided under this made-up doctrine. So it's a problem. Um, this Supreme Court has clear disdain for the administrative state, and it seems that this is one of the areas that they are really willing, the conservative supermajority is really willing to use any and whatever theory that they can. You know, a long time ago, I think we've talked about it in the past, we talked about Chevron deference and our deference, and this is like the level of deference that courts were able to give uh, agencies to interpret their own rules, and that, that I thought that was going to be a thing and that if they overrule Chevron, oh my God, then agencies won't even be able to argue that they understand what their own rules are, right? Mm -hmm. That's not even a thing anymore. There's a, there is a case, Loper Bright, on the docket this term that could overturn Chevron. Like, who cares about Chevron anymore? Like, they've already used the non-delegation doctrine and the major questions yeah. doctrine right, they've swallowed to really just right? to destroy the administrative state. So Chevron, Chevron, like, it, it's already a done deal. <laughs> So that's pretty depressing, isn't it? <laughs> I'm still on the ledge. We're going to join yeah, you up I'm there. Falling off. We're up. So it's over. Over. Hand. Like Move over. Move over. I think we're all Thanks. calling Greg and telling him he has to hold on to you this weekend for sure. So, Barb, um, can you predict the likely outcome based on the arguments this week? And were there any clues from Kavanaugh especially? Mm -hmm. Well, you know, there are a couple of moments that I think were um, very telling. Um, the first one was when Justice Kavanaugh 
said that he thought it was problematic that the government can deprive you of your property, your money, uh, substantial sums in a tribunal that is at least perceived as not being impartial. Who says it's not impartial? And so the idea is because this is part of the executive branch, these judges can't be impartial. I mean, we've had decades of immigration judges, SEC judges, social security judges, um, and they're their decisions are accepted. So uh, that, that has no basis in any fact whatsoever, but I think it does not bode well. But I think the um, the argument that actually really summed it up uh, about, I mean, it's definitely, you know, they got six votes, they've got the votes, but was when um, Justice Kagan said um, that, um, you know, this the only reason uh, that this has uh, not been decided before is no one's brought it up before. And Justice Kagan said, well, that's because nobody's had the, you know, chutzpah to quote my people to bring it up since 1977. <laughs> so um, it's uh, it, it's really discouraging to see the the court just sort of shaping its own agenda the way it wants to. But I, I think we can see which way this is coming out. Of course, that was one of the best lines of the entire day of argument for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing I want to do point out is that Actually, the truth is that Article Three judges are political appointments. And although they get life tenure, whereas administrative law judges are picked for their expertise. And so it isn't political. And so the argument seems to fall apart right away for me. Well, now comes our favorite part of the show, the part where we answer listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tag us at at sistersinlaw.podcast on threads or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our threads feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question comes from Jane and Jane asks... Uh, when George Santos is expelled from the House, will the Democratic governor of New York appoint a replacement or does it go to an election? Now that that's happened, Joyce, what's the process for replacing him? Yeah, so, you know, um, bless his heart, he may have been the first man on the (laughs) the moon and the starting center for the New York Knicks, but um, I'm afraid (laughs) that George Santos' time as a Jew-ish member of the Congress is now at an end. Um, Happy George Santos expulsion day to all who celebrate. And now it will be up to New York Governor Kathy Hochul to set new elections. His district will have the chance to elect a temporary successor. I just wanted to read um, this. uh, It's not a tweet. It's on threads from Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, because I think she gets the last word on George Santos. She wrote, George Santos has been expelled. If they can do this to a college volleyball star, world-famous Brazilian (laughs) journalist, successful New York City financier, um, am I saying that wrong? Financier. And noted producer of the Spider-Man musical, what hope is there for (laughs) we mere mortals? (laughs) Oh, that's Excellent. All right. Very good. Well, our next question comes to us from Kelly, who says, I hear many Republicans say that we are not a democracy— but are a constitutional republic. Can you please explain what each means? Kim, what do you got on that for us? Yeah, I can explain that. So that is correct. We are a constitutional republic, not a democracy. So a pure democracy, and it's worth noting that there aren't very many of them, uh, many nations anyway, that operate under a pure democracy. Some municipalities do. Um, Like in Massachusetts, when I covered local news, there are some towns that all the that all of the um, uh, local ordinances are are done by town meeting, which means all the people in the town come to like a gym uh, auditorium and they vote on everything. Everything is by majority of the people in the town who come to vote. That's a pure. That's a demo, That's an example of pure democracy, right? But nations don't run that way. Most of them do not. They are republics. Ours is a constitutional republic, which means there are 
there is a Bill of Rights that is full of things that are not up to a vote. Our right to vote is not up to a vote. The right to free speech is not up to a vote. That's not something that the people can, in an election, revoke. Right. It all the Constitution also sets up things like the two houses of uh, Congress. One in one, the Senate, every state gets two representatives in the other, the House. There is uh, rep- more represented uh, representative governments where there are districts that close more closely resemble the republic. We have things like the Electoral College. So people are not presidents are not elected by the um, uh, the by a pure majority of the electorate, they're elected by the electoral college. So there are different things. And the purpose is to ensure that the views of the minority are not completely ignored, that they're still represented in a way, because if we had a pure democracy, then the views of the majority would never win. It would only be pure majority rule, which isn't the best way to have a government According to hey, our Kim, can I add an example that I always use when I explain sure. this to my democratic institutions um, class? Um, I, I love Please. this example. If we were a pure democracy and if, you know, one person more than half of the country voted that everybody had to wear a pink dress on Thursday— then we would all have to wear a pink dress on Thursday, right? And so we have these constitutional principles that ground us and, as you say, protect the minority. Sometimes I think, you know, we talk about, well, gee, why aren't we a pure democracy? And that's the reason. It's necessary to protect all of our rights against abuse. I know sometimes we don't like it when we see a, you know, a popular vote and an electoral cut. And it's, but there are reasons that some of these rules exist and you really want some of them to exist. doesn't mean it's not room for reform, but a pure democracy may not be as great as you think it is. I think I wouldn't underestimate the need for reform of things like the uh, Electoral College. That may have served a purpose in a time past, but it doesn't anymore. But I think we need to, whatever that reform is, also needs to keep in mind protecting the views of the minority. Knee-jerk reactions I was going to say, one of the things that I I read into Kelly's question where she says, I hear many Republicans say that we're not a democracy, but a constitutional republic. You are hearing this more and more. And I think there is an effort to groom the public to push us toward this idea that, you know, some of us are not capable of deciding questions and we should allow, you know, smarter people to decide this. Mike Johnson, the new speaker, has said, you know what democracy is, don't you? Democracy is two lions and a lamb deciding what's for dinner. And, uh, you know, really suggesting that yeah. um, pure democracy is bad. And, and, you know, as you say, of course, we have these protections in, in the system because all of us don't have the time or expertise to focus on the minutia of it. And sometimes there's sensitive government information that we don't have access to and other kinds of things. But I do think Mike Lee was tweeting about this. Like, the point isn't to have a democracy. The point is to advance uh you know, humanity and sometimes democracy gets in the way. I just, I worry about the tone of that. There's some suggestion that, you know, certain people are entitled to more power than others. And I think there's a little creeping authoritarianism that's part of that rhetoric. I think that's absolutely right. And I thank you for making that point. And of course, our current Speaker of the House says that he believes that there are other things that are above the Constitution in terms of how he governs. So I think that is something that should concern us all. Our final question comes to us from at Mary C612, who asks, what is the impact if Trump is removed from a ballot? Can people still write his name in to vote for him? Jill, what do you think about that? That's an interesting twist. I think that was a fascinating question. And the answer is that, of course, people are free to write in his name. But if, and there are several ifs here, If he has been removed from the ballot, if he has been found guilty of insurrection and therefore not eligible, the constitutional amendment says eligible to serve. He may not serve as an officer. So therefore, you could write in his name, but he cannot be allowed to be inaugurated. And therefore, you would be throwing away your vote. So I would say don't vote for anyone who is removed from a ballot under the amendment that says you cannot serve in an office if you are guilty of having previously taken an oath and then violating that oath by doing an insurrection. But you guys, you know, you can always write in Jill Winebanks. <laughs> like the only job she hasn't had yet. yet. That's there right. you go. <laughs> yeah. 
Let's start it right <laughs> now. my dreams. Right. Draft, draft Jill Wine Banks. Write in candidate for 2024. I love it. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Wine Banks, Kimberly Atkins Store, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. Remember, you can send in your questions for next week by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. And show some love to this week's sponsors, Aura Frames, Aura, Kitsch, and Osea Malibu. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they support this podcast and it's why we can bring it to you each week. And if you're listening, I know you've already done this, but if not, what are you waiting for? Follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. It really helps others to find the show. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. Hey, you guys, before we start, I want to ask you a question. I'm um, going in to record the narration for my book of this week. And, Ooh. you know, I contend to get toward the raspy after talking for, for too long. Do you guys have any good advice for, uh, you know, sounding good, uh, keeping your voice sounding good after fatigue? Yeah, you know, I, as this, at this moment, I am sipping uh, throat coat tea. And that is actually a tip that I got from Greta Bronner at uh, C-SPAN when I used to guest host mm. over there. And it's really magical stuff. Like no matter what kind of cold I had or anything, my voice always sounded good on air. So I would very, very highly recommend that. It's a tea. You can get it at most grocery stores. Your voice always sounds quite melodious. So I will. Well, thank you. Throat coat sounds pretty good. What about you, Joyce? You got any ideas? You know, I love your voice, Barb. You're going to be good and you should just relax and have fun doing it. But like Kim, (laughs) I'm a big fan of throat coat and also of just sort of like sucking on little lozenges to keep your mouth from drying out. I mean, it might be a little bit difficult. Uh It's like reading your kids a long bedtime story. I remember when we (laughs) at one point decided to read our kids all of the Lord of the Rings. And I just remember like there were, we did when, when our boys were little, probably way too little for Lord of the Rings. And it was fun, but a lot of the time at the end, my, my throat was really dry. So you're smart to think in advance. When my kids were very young, if I got tired, even if I was on like page 12 of a 20-page book, I would say, oh, and they all went to bed in the end. <laughs> and then they started getting older and no- like, wait a minute, you skipped a part. <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Jill? What's your advice for keeping my, my voice? Well, well I was denied the opportunity to read my whole book. I had, they hired mm-hmm. a narrator and let me read the prologue and the epilogue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was shocked at how hard it yeah. is to do just that amount and to pronounce names yep. properly, to get it clearly enunciated. Um, and and I know Joyce has used a navage, which I don't use because <laughs> I'm too cheap to buy it. I use a neti, a neti pot, pot, which is... I'm afraid to ask. It's a, it looks like Aladdin's lamp with a long little spout, and you actually clear your, your sinuses by putting salted water, special salt that they sell, um, through your nasal passages, and it really clears them out and it makes you less dry. Um, Obviously, drinking water is really good. Hot water with lemon and honey definitely helps your throat, but it's probably not as good as Kim's suggestion for- I love how delicate Jill is about this because I use my Navage every morning. I have terrible sinuses. And so I go in there and I just sort of stand in front of the mirror and and it's really gross. I sort of shove this thing in front of my nose, but it clears everything up. It's (laughs) not in front of your nose choice. You know what I'm saying. You're like, you know, I'm awake and you walk into the bathroom and it's sort of gross, but you feel so much better after you do it. I think I'd rather the be The look stunning. on your face yeah, right now. You, you had me with tea and throat lozenges, <laughs> but I think I draw the line at the netty Trust pot. me on this no one. No thanks myself. Good I, stuff. I don't know. <laughs> well, if I sound raspy, you'll know that I, uh, I, I said no to the netty pot. I would love to talk a Southland in a traveling mystery show. I'd love to tour the Southland in a traveling minstrel show. Yes, I'm down to be a star and 
Big Bang.